Welcome to the latest installment of the Pharma Forum podcast. In this episode, I speak with Curavit Clinical Researchers, CEO and co-founder Joel Morse, and also the CEO of Digital Therapeutics Alliance, or DTA, Andy Molnar, about the whys and the wherefores of digital therapeutics, or DTX, not being prescribed despite being effective and safe. Our conversation centres around health economics outcomes and the place of digital health within that, as well as decentralised clinical trials and accelerating DTX into the hands of patients. What becomes clear is that in this field, understanding is yet in development and further education around the role of and the need for these therapies is very much necessary though the healthcare community, certainly in the US, where the discussion is mainly focused, is very much a learning community, one primed for this digital transformation. With examples aplenty and insights too, I hope you'll agree it makes for an interesting and informative episode. As ever, thank you for listening. This is your host, web editor Nicole Raleigh. And today I have as guests Joel Morse, CEO and co-founder of Curavit Clinical Research, and with him Andy Molnar, CEO of Digital Therapeutics Alliance, otherwise known as the DTA. Welcome both. Thank you. Thank you. So Curavit is a virtual contract research organization, or VCRO, specializing in decentralized clinical trials, also known as DCTs, for digital therapeutics, or DTX. And the DTA works to enable expanded access to high-quality, evidence-based digital therapeutics for patients, clinicians, and payers to improve clinical and health economic outcomes, providing the digital health ecosystem with the necessary tools to define, evaluate, and utilize digital therapeutics products. So in this episode, we'll be exploring why it is that DTX are effective and safe but not being prescribed. And we'll also discuss Curavit's latest health economics and outcomes research or HEOR practice for pharmaceutical clinical trials. Firstly, though, to kick us off, perhaps you could both provide listeners with a glimpse of your respective backgrounds in this field and your journeys to where you are today. Don't know who wants to begin. Andy, why don't you go? Sure, sure. Thank you so much for having me. Andy Molnar, I'm the CEO of the Digital Therapeutics Alliance. I've been here now for two and a half years, but I, I got into digital therapeutics um, around six years ago now. And the first question I asked was, how do you pre e-prescribe a digital therapeutic? And nobody had that answer. And so as you start with that question of they're clinically validated and effective, but still unable to get into the hands of patients, well, one of those first reasons was that doctors didn't know how to prescribe them. Um, and imagine still using fax machines to e-prescribe one of the most innovative technologies in healthcare. And so with that, it sort of took me down this path of figuring out all the mechanics and plumbing of the industry to make it possible for the companies to be successful. And I found that my passion lied in that space specifically. And so when the position to move on from focusing on government affairs and policy, market access, reimbursement, and commercialization of digital therapeutics for one company. And the opportunity came up to work at the Digital Therapeutics Alliance to make this industry successful for everybody. I jumped at that um, 
it's why I get out of bed in the morning and it's what I think about when I go to bed at night. Brilliant. Thank you, Andy. And Joel? Yeah, Joel Morris, uh, CEO, co-founder of Curavit Clinical Research. We founded Curavit at the beginning of 2020, right before the pandemic, to focus on decentralized virtual clinical trials. So definitely a bit ahead of the curve there. Um, my journey in this industry started in the 90s when I co-founded a company called C3I. We built that into a global pharmaceutical services company focused on clinical trials and commercial services and offices in the U.S., uh, Bulgaria, India, China, Japan. And we sold that to Merck in 2014. I stayed on at Merck running that business, uh, pharmacovigilance business and a medical information call center business for Merck. And then that was sold to a company called HCL. And I led that sale and led the integration. And once that was complete, founded Curavit. So I have a long journey and a lot of expertise in being exposed to and running global clinical trials for, um, in our case, large pharmaceutical companies. A lot of expertise indeed. Thank you for that, Joel. So research is showing that digital therapeutics products, they can drive better outcomes for patients living with these chronic diseases. And it's an area that experts predict will contribute up to 84% of total global mortality by 2030, these chronic conditions. Now, additional studies have shown that the potential of DTX products to improve health outcomes, reduce clinician workload, lower the costs of care, reduce health disparities based on geography or socioeconomic levels. The list goes on. They're brilliant. So can you explain why it is that they're not being prescribed? Want to go first, Andy? Sure. The number one reason, oh, actually, so I won't, I won't even say that, but there's a variety of reasons. The first that I would bring up is the complexity of who's going to pay for the products. So Medicare in the United States still doesn't have a benefit category to pay for digital therapeutics. In 1965, when they founded Medicare, they thought all care was going to be delivered at the doctor's office. It took into the early 2000s for there to even be a pharmacy benefit to cover drugs for the elderly. So it's it's not really the most up-to-date program that we have. Now, you can see in European countries, they're trying to put pilot programs and reimbursement um, pathways in place. It takes, and it's still taking a long time. And I think one of the reasons that it's taking a very long time is because getting the data together to prove to all the key stakeholders, medical directors, and providers to adopt these products is quite complex. And when you're working with startups that have maybe raised 10, 20, 30 million dollars. They don't have the financials that pharmaceutical companies have. And um, sometimes they're trying to start with their clinical data and their real world evidence isn't there. Their health economics data isn't there. And so to provide a new technology, it has to be believable, not to the echo chamber that I live in, but to the broad population and to providers that, that give care. And so I think with that, I'll hand it to Joel to really dive into the data piece. Yeah, what we see is a lack of understanding in the healthcare ecosystem. And that is across the board from you know, consumers or, or, or patients to healthcare providers. So as we engage in clinical trials for digital therapeutics and we're putting our clinical teams together, a lot of times our biggest challenge is actually finding a um, PI you know, principal investigator, the MD degree that has 
any type of exposure to this type of you know medical device or you know software as a medical device or this approach to delivering healthcare. So I think that paying always follow the money, but also there is a material effort that is required to educate the ecosystem on this new genre of providing healthcare. And so more and more data that is captured and that illustrates effectiveness will be very well received by the medical community. Because one thing about the medical community here in the U.S. is they're a learning organization, constantly reading new papers, constantly looking at at ways to improve, first and foremost, the health of their patient population. And then, of course, if you can overlay a financial benefit, you've got a win-win. And that's what, what we see as the activity required to really get this industry off the ground. Thank you, Joel. So main points are finance, perhaps some restructuring, training and education, taking all these into consideration. Let's turn now to what CureVet specifically is doing with its new HEOR data collection for clinical trials. Yes, thank you. So in order to what we want to do, be able to do is to effectively run clinical trials. And by definition, that is collecting endpoint data that proves or disproves that the therapy has medical value. By adding on our HEOR service, we at the same time capture insurance claims and medical record data. So that data set can actually quantify the amount of spending in the healthcare ecosystem for those people in the trial. And what you're looking for, and so we have that identified data. And then what we look for are a number of things, but often it's to compare the people in the trial on the therapy against people of similar situation. So in our, our our client med rhythms, that situation is a stroke with a gait impairment and looking to use the med rhythms product to improve gait. Also improves other things. It improves uh, the fall, it, it decreases fall rate, as an example, and hospitalizations from that. It improves uh, quality of life and mm-hmm. lowers depression. So those things can uh, translate into lower access to the healthcare ecosystem. And so for the MedRhythms trial, we're collecting both the uh, real-world evidence on how people use this device a lot over a year and how they use the healthcare resources and compare that to people with the same challenge with the stroke diagnosis with, with walking impairment and see how much their medical cost is over the same time. And obviously, the hypothesis is, and the results that we'd like to see, is that People on the MedRhythms device improve their walking, of course, and then also decrease the spending of healthcare in their daily lives. And I, I just want to call out the importance of finding a incredible and intelligent partner for your health economics data. The complexity of it, I think, is sometimes lost on people that don't do it because consider the number of claims associated with a stroke patient. And consider the comorbidities associated with that stroke patient. For example, you could end up in the ER from a heart attack 
may have nothing to do with the fact that your gate has not improved, right? So having people who truly understand how to dig into that data, like the Curavit team, is imperative to getting the proper data out to so that you can share that with insurers and with providers and patients so that you see proper coverage of the product. Mm, absolutely. I want to, on that point, Andy and Joel, so this, at the moment, what we've been discussing is very US-centric. How can something like this um, apply to and assist with, say, the European environment, the health ecosystem there? So that is outside of our purview at CureVit today. Yeah. We are US-focused. I'm sure Andy can take a crack at it, but I want to be clear that we are US-focused. No, absolutely. But yeah. something of this nature. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you're you're going to see um, similar studies done everywhere. However, um, I think every country that I end up learning about is is different. Mm-hmm. Some care more about the clinical data, and especially when you get into national healthcare systems, the differences in how they look at the economics versus the um, impact to the patients is different. Sometimes you'll see like the DIGA program in Germany they've cut down the reimbursement rates for everybody. And so with that, it makes it really complex if you're bringing a product that may cost two or 3,000 euros to market, getting reimbursed in the 200 space. Your economic data really isn't impacting that regardless. So you really have to know the market that you're in and the importance of the economic piece. Now, what I would do is make an argument that for population health, we're always trying to provide better care for less money. And so the difference between how you get the product in the market versus the value that you're bringing to the market may be different, but you're still going to study these the same way. I mean, the comorbidities associated with stroke, just as that example, are not changing amongst culture or gender. Thank you, Andy. And then bringing it back to its specific parameters in the US with Curavit's um, virtual CRO, and it is the first in the life sciences industry. How does this impact the overall shift, as it were, towards decentralized clinical trials? I think it's broader than decentralized clinical trials. So it is an important element, and we see it it being helpful in decentralized trials. So because we're able to capture this outside of the clinic and outside of bricks and mortar, I think it helps to encourage and confirm the decentralized approach to trials. Uh, That said, I also do see a broad focus on just doing more of this, regardless if it's a decentralized trial or not. And so, because the economic challenge in the U.S. around healthcare is quite substantial. And I think that the sponsors, whether they're DTX or traditional larger pharma, are aware that it's not just good enough to show efficacy, they need to show economic value. And so it's, it's something that you will absolutely see in the decentralized space, especially in the digital therapeutics, but I think more broadly, across the board, and and you will see a lot more real-world evidence uh, trials focused on this. Yeah, I think that's the important piece to just for me to reemphasize is that the the clinical data, the health economic data, and the real-world data, the the three of them together are are really um, what's going to push 
push adoption. And that health economic data, it's both in the retrospective data, and then you also want to see it in your prospective data that it works out in the real world the way that you anticipate. Great. Thank you, Andy. So this triumvirate then, going, actually, you preempted my next question, the future horizon in 10 or 20 years with this in place, or this sort of thing in place, I, I suppose the question is, what is the hope and what is the prediction given inroads thus far? Well, the, the, I think the hope ultimately is more as today the focus is on treatment. Think about the hope as in identifying things early so that you avoid having to treat and can direct people in you know better choices so that they avoid challenges. So I think that the digital therapeutic component of healthcare and digital medicine will become greater and greater because not only are they showing that they can improve people's health post something, a stroke in the case that we've been talking about, but they can predict and avoid things proactively. And that I think is really, you know, maybe not the holy grail, but getting pretty close to it. And that will, you know, more emphasis in that combined with the health economics about the advantages of that is, is really where I think this goes in five and, and 10 years. It's super exciting. And I think we're just getting started with it. And the it being, you know, you can address people, health issues and improve them. But I think you're starting to see out of, out of the whole DTX ecosystem and under DTA, a stronger emphasis on being able to predict and all supported by health economics, making the point that this is actually something that will lower the overall cost of healthcare to the whole population. Andy, is that too, too aggressive? No, I, I like being aggressive because then if you get close, you know, that that's yeah. good. If if you start here and you only get here, then that's that's not great. So let let's go with with the holy grail, you know. And I exactly. think the only other thing I'd add on is that you know we're we're having a lot of conversations because of the low side effects or um, yeah side effect profile of DTX yeah. that real world evidence can be used for things like label expansion. And so as that starts to come into play, the importance of what Curavit is doing. Um, becomes even more in the forefront. And so it'll it'll be interesting to see how that evolves and how we can get these products in the hands of patients faster and get that data out into the world faster as well. Thank you both. Exciting indeed. Been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. And so that concludes another episode of the PharmaForum podcast. You can find out more information about this episode, including a download link and information about previous installments of the series at pharmaforum.com forward slash podcasts. The Pharmaforum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher and Podbean, where you can find and subscribe by searching the Pharmaforum. Of course, don't forget to visit our website itself, where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins, and follow us on Twitter, or X nowadays, at at PharmaForum. That's all for now. Thank you for listening.